if you can optimize your own business to be faster at dealing with these things, so increasing the agility and increasing the velocity in decision-making, you can hopefully be better than your competitors at responding to the unforeseen events. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? It's episode 125. Today, we're talking about resilience in uncertain times here in the manufacturing world. Our guest this week is Willem Sunblad, co-founder and CEO of Odin Technologies. Now, Odin is an intelligent industrial automation and AI-powered analytics provider, and you might be familiar with Willem from when he first appeared on this podcast in episode 67. We talked a lot about machine learning and Odin Technologies that time around. Today, we're talking about the state of manufacturing here in 2023 and beyond. So, here are a few things you can expect from today's episode. First, we talk quite a bit about sustainability and digitization and how focus in those areas are impacting business results. Second, we also talk about workforce and supply chain. And finally, on a completely different topic, Willem and I catch up on our own recent respective travels to Sweden, where Willem is originally from and where I actually visited for the first time this past summer. So a bit of a smorgasbord to today's conversation. But as always, if you want to learn more, if you want to connect with Willem, you can do that over at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 125. And if you want to have conversations like this with other manufacturing leaders, hey, you should join the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community. We have over 600 industry leaders in that group, that community. It's based on LinkedIn. If you go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community, it takes you straight to our private LinkedIn group. Shoot me a message, request to join just so I've got context. It would be great to have you in there. Again, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. And with that, we shouldn't waste any more time here. Let's uh, let's catch up with our friend, Willem Sunblad. Willem, welcome back to Manufacturing Happy Hour, a very appropriate round two after you and I have each had trips to your home country of Sweden. We have. I'm still riding the jet lag of waking up extremely early, but fantastic to be back. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And you got, I remember last time you said we'd be having drinks at your favorite ski area there. Can can you paint? Because you were just there getting some runs in, correct? That's where I was. Yeah, exactly. So December in that place is a very different time though, because sun rises around 10 a.m. and it sets around 2 p.m. <laughs> so you don't have a lot of sunlight. And actually, it's in the valley, so the sun doesn't, you don't even get some direct sunlight <laughs> unless you go to the top of the mountain. But it's fun for a lot of other reasons. So, yes, I was going to say the Apri skiing, the afterwards, the uh, Aquavit um, to, to wash down a good day of skiing. So, what is the name of that place again? I'm, it's escaping me. So, it's A with a ring on top of it, 
O-R-E, and it's pronounced Ore. Ore. Okay. I never was able to get my Swedish down while I was over there. I think the only term I might remember, because I tried practicing it a lot, is a Stockholm street food, I think, called a tumbarula. Is that how you pronounce it? Oh, nice. Yeah, it is. That was my first meal when I got there. And and I think it's like, it's basically like a hot dog wrapped in mashed potatoes and shrimp salad. Am I making that up? I don't want to butcher no, it. It's you're your not. country. No, you're not. <laughs> hot dogs, mashed potatoes, shrimp salad wrapped in like a flat bread. Uh, yeah, flat bread, essentially. Delicious. I want to be very, <laughs> exactly. I want to be very clear for the listeners. It sounds really weird. <laughs> I thought it sounded weird when I was ordering it, but it is delicious. So yeah. it, uh, it hit the spot. I, I, um, last time you said, Hey, we'd probably be having, um, some aquavit if we were having this conversation in person, you compared it to Malort, a lethal Chicago based beverage. Our listeners mm-hmm. are familiar with. I will say my experience having it was significantly better than yeah. I thought it was pretty good. It was it was one of the last drinks I had before uh, before flying home. There's a big spectrum of aquavit and Malort is on, you know, the bad end and you usually <laughs> tend to stay, you know, closer to this end. Yeah. Yeah. I had a great time visiting for my first time. Glad to hear you had a great trip home for the holidays. But uh, we're sitting here now in 2023. It's been about maybe a year and a half since we first talked, mm-hmm. and you recently released another state of manufacturing report, and this one was focused on resilience in uncertain times. So give me like the one-minute summary of it as if we're having uh, Akvavit or a beverage uh, <laughs> back in Sweden. So we've been doing this for a couple of years now, and we really try to get a pulse of what's happening in the market. How do people feel about the you know, current state of demand of the labor issues of uh, digital investments of sustainability to really just understand, you know, outside of the customers that we talked to and prospects that we talked to, what is really the, the signal that's coming from the market? So this is the third year in a row that we've done it and we've surveyed, um, I'm going to get the number right. Sorry, wrong. So I'm just going to say over 300 manufacturers, predominantly in the U.S., but I think it covers some in North America, to ask them, you know, really, what is the state of manufacturing right now? And it's been interesting to see how it's changed over the last couple of years as well. And so we're starting to see some of that uncertainty coming in in 2022. And so the sentiment is a little bit different than it was in, in you know, 2020 and 2021 when we started this. And and that's what I'm interested to dive into today, because I mean, to be honest, a theme of manufacturing happy hour this year has been how do you do business in uncertain times? How do you keep your eye on the ball? What are things successful companies are doing? What are things companies that aren't as successful doing right now? And I'm, I'm excited to get your perspectives on on some of this today. And and one of the first ones is you know the correlation between success and sustainability and uh, digital initiatives. So. My first question is that it kind of jumped out at me that companies with greater demand right now correlate with ones that are investing in sustainability and digitization efforts. Like maybe give us some some background on it. What type of digitization investments are being made right now by these companies? So I think, you know, under the umbrella of digitization, there's a lot that goes into that. There's, you know, 
there's MES investments, there's analytics investments, there's robotics and, and automation. I kind of just grouped that into the overall umbrella of really investing in their technology stack to be more resilient and efficient. Um, but yeah, the interesting thing when we looked at, you know, 2021 to 2022, there's definitely, you know, fewer people that are seeing the high demand of or the demand surge that they saw in 2021. And also there's kind of a difference between who are investing in in digital and sustainability. The people that are seeing demand, they are, you know, keeping their investments or increasing their investments. And the people who are seeing, you know, decreased demands are, you know, keeping their wallets a little bit tighter on both of those areas. And so not necessarily surprising, more that it really confirms a bias that in uncertain times, you get a larger separation between the winners and losers. Because, you know, if your business is all of a sudden, sudden a little bit more at risk due to decreased demand, people tend to go back to basics, not experiment, not try new things, and really just focus on how do we keep food on the plate. But the people who are still doing well, they are really significantly increasing their investments. And I think both digital and sustainability are things that will serve them for the long term. I think we've seen the past cycles that the people who really invested in the downturn of 2008 were much better equipped to deal with the you know, long bull market and especially the ending surge in demand that we had um, you know, post-pandemic. One thing that stuck out about it, I think all of this intuitively makes sense to me, right? If you're investing in your company, if you're modernizing, of course, you're going to be more successful and you're going to have more demand. What uh, This is maybe a world according to Willem question. I'm curious on your perspective on this. Why do manufacturers seem to still need proof that digitization is a good investment, right? Like uh, maybe it's just because I talk about this every week, but it just seems like people get themselves in this position right now and they're like, well, we didn't know we should have done it. But I'm I'm just like, no, you've seen this for years. Why why do you think there's some people that still need proof that this is the thing they need to do? So that's a good question. I tend to think of it a little bit differently because the proof is the proof is already there. And so if you have someone that needs an incredible amount of proof, they probably have a confirmation bias against doing it in the first place, which actually risks the execution of the project if you have half the company wanting it to fail because they didn't want it to succeed in the first place. So maybe I'm being a little bit self-selecting in how I think about it, but the proof is there. You can prove it before you deploy, you can prove it as you're deploying, and you can certainly prove it as you scale it out. And so, you know, there's case studies, there's references. I don't think that I don't think that ROI is the challenge at all. I think that for the people who have tried different solutions or made investments to but haven't been successful to really diagnose the root cause of that issue and be upfront about it with future vendors because it helps us all align on what is the problem that we want to solve. 
I think one big one that we're seeing a lot of um, and that we're investing a lot in is data accuracy as an example. Because, you know, in the manufacturing industry, if you're going to do digital initiatives, oftentimes it comes down to people saying, well, it's garbage in, garbage out. Well, if that's the root of the problem, and that is what caused earlier initiatives to fail, then let's solve the garbage in problem. Let's invest in how we can get more accurate, more clean, more automated data sources so that the whole program has a higher likelihood of success. So I think, you know, I think that the proof is there and not just from us, from many, you know, vendors who are offering digital tools and technologies. And so that part is easy. It's really understanding what have they tried in the past and what failed? What is the bias that would prevent them from moving quickly or from scaling up? And are you solving the thing that actually matters to them? We tend to be very focused when we work because we want to work with customers and partners who, who will scale significantly. So that means that there needs to be a really significant problem. There needs to be alignment. And you know we want to sit on the same side of the table and solve a really big problem together. So it sounds like there's some introspection required there. It's looking at past projects and figuring out what what hasn't worked, what are the root causes, and why might I have some bias going into this that's uh, preventing people from making the moves that, like you said, the proof is there. Yeah. And that's where like they can look at you know previous things that they've done because it's almost like you know, what we're talking about digital investments right now, we've been making big digital investments in manufacturing for, you know, God knows how long. The ERP rollout that they did, I don't know if it was in the 90s or early 2000s, that was a digital investment. They probably went from pen, pen and paper or something homegrown before then. You know, the MES rollout that they may or may not have done or completed. Some of these earlier technologies that they have probably invested in were probably quite cumbersome. And they probably encompassed, you know, a huge swath of the organization to get it over the line. And so when people are done with that, you kind of have a lot of baggage from prior digital waves. And so both understanding of resources required, understanding of timelines, understanding of risks, what's different, what isn't, having a clear picture of that will help people get on board much, much faster. So I have a question on the other side of that, right? We talked about largely focused on digitization so far, but sustainability, I think digitization was a bit more intuitive for me. Like why is investing in sustainability a reason for increased demand? Like digitization makes sense. We've got the proof, but why would there be more demand for a company investing in sustainability? So that could be true. It could certainly be true if you're a manufacturer that's selling, you know, more towards a consumer end market where a consumer demands better traceability, more recycled material, et cetera, et cetera. I also think that the flip side could be true because we're not truly proving the causation there that companies who are doing well are investing in sustainability, not that companies that are investing in sustainability are therefore doing well. As we fast forward a couple of years, we can then actually link this back a little bit more and see if those winners that are investing now stay winners, you know, two years out. But a couple of things that have been, you know, really important from a sustainability standpoint. I talked to a lot of customers last year 
who are beating most of their sustainability targets, especially around use of recycled material, a lot of that was because of the supply chain issues, because it was so hard to get new raw material that they had to increase the rate of um, recycled material in the product in order to produce anything. And so before, customers may have demanded you know, a very low grade of recycled material, but all of a sudden they accepted a higher grade because they just needed the products in the first place. And so the sustainability challenges of last year when it comes to raw materials actually moved the needle a significant amount on sustainability and acceptance of different material grades in the products. You also have, this is less of a problem when I look at U.S. manufacturing compared to European manufacturing, but the energy um, is, is another huge area of sustainability here. Because in you know, Europe, you've probably seen on the news or, or heard about the challenges with the energy prices in Europe following the, the war in Ukraine. And that has forced a lot of manufacturers to think differently about the energy mix and how susceptible to risk that is. And that's why you see a lot of you know, new industrial investments are happening in, say, northern Sweden, as an example, where you have huge access to hydroelectricity. And same thing, companies in the US have you know, started to change their energy mix quite a lot. People are really investing in, in solar energy, as an example, and, and looking at cleaner energy sources because the consumers demand it, a lot of manufacturers are expecting um, new changes from the SEC in terms of ESG reporting as well. And some people want to get ahead of that. So they're starting to look at both, you know, recycled material, um, cradle to grave, you know, life cycle for their own products and energy. And I think especially like all of those things just make pure business sense in the long term. But they do come with investments in the in the short term, but especially energy independence, and and uh, you know, use of recycled material is something that's waiting for the whole for all the stakeholders really. Yeah, a bit later, um, I do want to ask you a bit more about supply chain, but I think that's a very good point for people to easily take away, right? Like the fact that supply chain was such an issue last year. Um, and really leading up to that, like, of course, it's going to drive some more sustainable practices. How can we make use of what we have versus having to rely on the things that we can't get? Yeah. Same thing, like one of the biggest drivers of the digital investments and automation investments is the challenges in the labor market. Because it's just, you know, and it still is really hard to attract the talent. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to see that it's. It's really the fundamental business drivers creating the opportunity for innovation here. Well, it's these correlations that I'm interested in in this conversation. And I think you made a great point, right? Just because someone's investing in sustainability doesn't necessarily mean the business is doing well. There was a different correlation in the report, though, that stuck out that economic optimism seems to go more hand in hand with sustainability investments though why, why do you think manufacturers with economic optimism are investing in sustainability i do think that again goes into kind of the the separation between the winners and losers maybe that's a harsh term but it's a simple way of, of looking at the market in terms of who's doing really well and who's seeing a contracting demand 
Because I do think that when you're seeing that contract in demand and uncertainty for the future, it's very much a back to basics thinking. And I don't want to call sustainability investments a luxury investment, but it is certainly a more, you know, long-term investment in the future resiliency of that supply chain. And also in terms of, you know, the market demand and potential regulations that may come up in the future. If you're just trying to survive, then a lot of those investments are going to fall, fall off. So when you see the correlation of both, you know, companies that are doing well are increasing their investments in sustainability and digital, and also the ones that have an optimistic outlook, they continue to pour more money into that. I think it's one of these dichotomy things where the people are doing well, are going to continue to invest, and they're going to continue to outperform the markets. So uh, another area I have questioned a question on from the report is it looks like companies or manufacturers that are giving frontline staff more decision-making influence are also yielding better results. And I think this is an interesting topic as you talked you talked about the labor shortage briefly a moment ago, but can you go into that a bit more? Are we seeing that correlation as well? How are you seeing that correlation? Yeah, that's an interesting one, especially when you look at kind of uncertain times. One of the things to really think about is how agile are you? And how agile you are could be taken as a you know function of your speed of decision making. And if your decision making is centralized and it's high up in the organization, it is going to be fairly slow uh, by definition. So if you can really empower people um, who understand the process, who understand you know the needs of the day to day to take decisions and take good decisions quickly, um, you can become more agile and you can move faster and you can respond to you know, the uncertainty in a much healthier way. So yeah, that one's interesting to see. And I think, so part of it is responding to, you know, urgent needs and uncertain times. Another one is also just um, trying to do better with labor issues. I think that people are really thinking about how can we be the employer of choice in the region that we're playing? And part of that is creating, you know, really meaningful jobs for people. So it's great to see that correlation. And it's ultimately positive for the whole industry because it makes those jobs better. And it probably makes those companies more fast moving and agile. So you mentioned supply chain earlier, and I think you already gave part of this answer, right? I'm curious to know how manufacturers can invest in like a more flexible, more resilient supply chain. You talked about that going hand in hand with sustainability, being able to recycle. Are there other aspects to that that you'd add to that? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that, so in, um, when we did this in, I believe it was the 2020 report, and we were talking about, um, you know, the post-immediate pandemic surge in demand, there was a supply chain executive that I spoke to who really questioned it. And just said, like, is this actually real or is it just artificial based on the current constraints? Meaning that orders, people are putting in orders that are bigger in order to get allocations of, say, raw material. Um, and the actual demand increase isn't that big. 
And we're starting to see some signs of that right now in that manufacturers have built up a lot more inventory. And so we're starting to get kind of a smoothing out of some of the supply chain issues because some of the bottlenecks are getting worked out, but also the kind of crazy buying behavior that was a necessity to survive over the last two years is changing a little bit. But ultimately, you know, they have to think about what's their risk to their critical components. One of the things that Brian Shepard from Rockwell brought up in the report that I thought was, you know, the right way to think about this is, you know, if we have a really critical component in the product that we're selling and we can't sell that product without that component, how can we re-engineer the product in the first place in order to get it out the door? Because if it's a specific chip coming from you know, a specific supplier in Asia and we can't deliver this to the customer without that chip, that's a huge risk for the business. And so thinking not only about your mix of suppliers, their geographic distribution, but also your own resiliency in your design and you know, potential to re-engineer and then still get it out to the customers. So it all comes down to speed of decision-making and agility again, because you're never going to have the perfect supply chain because you can't perfectly foresee it. But if you can optimize your own business to be faster at dealing with these things, so increasing the agility and increasing the velocity in decision-making, you can hopefully be better than your competitors at responding to the unforeseen events. Great tip from uh, from Brian over at Rockwell, right? Re-engineer if you think there's something that's going to be critical that you're not going to be able to get to complete your product. You, I mean, you mentioned in the report, you talked to over 300 manufacturers. Are you seeing manufacturers, I mean, you don't need to give like an exact percentage or an exact example, but are you seeing manufacturers that have been successful at doing this? Because it certainly sounds nice to be able to re-engineer to avoid some of these supply chain issues. But based on the people you work with and talk to, have you seen this mm-hmm. play out in practice? I mean, to a certain extent, it's, it's actually the same thing happening with the increase of recycled material. And that happened all over, you know, with many, many customers all over last year, where they needed to increase the rate of recycled material for their products because they just couldn't get access to enough material. But if you do that, you really need to change how you're processing it because you can't expect the exact same behavior if you're completely changing the, the raw material mix. Um, and so they were, in fact, you know, re-engineering their process, you know, the settings, the instructions to the operators and everything in order to maintain quality, maintain output with a completely new raw material mix making up the product. So we saw that a lot last year. Um, which is very cool. Well, what I've liked about this story arc, if you will, right? I think when we hear terms like sustainability, it can sound a little fluffy, nice and Mm -hmm. fuzzy, right? But I think you've given a great example of where sustainability plays directly into the supply chain, directly into re-engineering and being more effective with what you have available in manufacturing. And that's where like, you know, we we talked a lot about the recycled material, but ultimately, you know, the energy costs is it, it's another huge one as well. Again, not as big in, in the US as it is in, in Europe, but figuring out how you can have a more secure energy base that is lower cost and that is greener 
is is ultimately you know de-risk the company and for in a lot of places it is a cheaper source of electricity um the other one i think you know going in if we're saying that we're going to go into you know not the not a bull market um if we're going into tougher times um people are going to start to look a lot more at conversion costs in their margins and that still goes into you know efficiency savings and sustainability sustainability savings as well can you reduce the amount of material that you consume for that product in the first place so there's a lot of sustainability investments and results in manufacturing that kind of get hidden because it's just we're just talking about making ourselves more efficient than lean like we've always done this <laughs> like if i solve if i minimize my scrap if i minimize my material consumption that's great and now you can label it as sustainability i'm not trying to be cynical about it i actually think it's that manufacturers should get more credit for the things that are doing on a day-to-day basis because they do actually have a sustainability impact. Yes. Yeah, it's funny how that works out, right? Some people are using it as a buzzword. Other people are actually doing it, but they're not giving themselves enough credit for yeah. it. You know, we, we've kind of walked through, let's say, the highlights of the report today, right? And for everyone listening out there, I'll have a link to it in the show notes at, at manufacturinghappyhour.com for people that want to dive deeper. But, you know, something we won't be able to read in the report is maybe some of your own personal perceptions on it, Willem. I'm curious, was there anything from the report that you found surprising um, as you were going through it and creating it? So a couple of things that I found interesting was um, there was a quote there from Elad, a a great manufacturing executive, Durling, their VP of operations, that, you know, COVID isn't the issue anymore, but the aftershocks of COVID is still what, what they're dealing with in many cases. And in their case, you know, they're um they're tied to you know fiber installations. And so moving more people or expanding broadband access has a positive impact on the business. And expanding broadband access and you know ability to work from anywhere is you know a bigger theme now than it was two years ago. But also in terms of how it's changed people's um, expectations um, in the labor market, because you know we know now that you know the labor issue just continues, and it is not necessarily that we're losing people to competitors; they're just leaving the industry, which makes their problem even harder. Because once they've left the industry, it's harder to get them back than to get them back from a competitor, and so the aftershocks of COVID still being the thing that is mostly top of mind on supply chain, on demand, and on the labor issues is is really interesting to see. Yeah. And and I appreciate you giving us your perspectives, taking us through the report, your findings. It's been great having you back on. Before I do want to figure hear what's going on with Odin Technologies these days before we wrap up. But before I I get there, is there anything you wish we would have covered that we haven't talked about? No, I think we I think we covered a lot. I do think that there's even though it's uncertain, I still see a lot of positive signs in the market. So I think 2023 will be a um a decent year for the industry. We still have 
a lot of geopolitical global shifts that are positive for you know domestic manufacturing. Um, you still have a really strong you know really strong demand for labor in manufacturing. You have strong demand for technology in manufacturing. So I think 2023 is going to be a very interesting year. We'll see. You know, it's a cyclical business, and you know a lot of investments do get made in the downturn, especially in terms of automation and resiliency. So I'm excited for 2023. Yeah, I uh, I like that we're ending on a positive note, right? You know, <laughs> when there is uncertainty, if there is more of a downturn. You know, if we think back to 2008, that's when a lot of big companies and big investments were made that became behemoths in the next decade. So, like you said, there's still a lot, like, we haven't solved the labor issue yet. There's still plenty of jobs to be had in manufacturing. I, I want to ask you then on, on your side of the table at Odin Technologies, what are you excited and optimistic about in uh, in 2023? So, I'm really excited about um, a couple of things that we'll be launching this year. Um, big, we're making big investments on what we call data enrichment. Um, that's to improve accuracy and integrity of the data itself to kind of solve that garbage in, garbage out problem. It's a particularly important area because it allows for a lot more automation of previously difficult tasks to automate that were non-value-added tasks for operators. And so it's one of these double whammies where you both increase the value of the data that you have and you make the jobs easier for the operators. So it can help with training, it can help with attraction. And then when you have structured and labeled data, you can actually move a lot further in terms of making the jobs easier and better for operators. So you're going to see a lot more focus on data accuracy, the path towards, I'm not going to say autonomous manufacturing yet, but the path there is getting a lot clearer for industries where previously it was extremely difficult, completely operator-dependent industries. And those industries are the ones where I'm most excited to work in right now because they're at the intersection of needing to transform because of the um, because of the labor challenges and with really interesting data characteristics that you know with the right application of technology you can really change both the efficiency of the business the nature of the job make it better and more accessible to more people because ultimately if we have this huge gap in the labor market you really have two paths. You can either automate, <laughs> so you can do the same thing with fewer people, um, which is really difficult for certain areas and certain tasks, or you can make those tasks much easier so that they can be performed by more people, so you're truly increasing the size of the talent pool that you can attract. And then you can automate some of it as well that you weren't able to before. So those are the areas that I'm most excited in. and. I think 2023 is going to be a great year. Well, I know we have listeners um, that are dealing with garbage in, garbage out on their data. Um, I will have links to connect with you and Odin Technologies in the show notes. 
um, you know, talking here on Manufacturing Happy Hour, I get a sense of what people are excited about and where there's optimism or concern on a macro level. And certainly there's some uncertainty that's been a theme of the show this year. But autonomous manufacturing, man, that's another one that's been coming up. AI uh, has been a big theme. So um, we're starting to hear some some common themes here uh, here on the show this year. And to tie it back to some of the things that we've talked about in the past, if you're thinking about you know a future where we have autonomous systems, what you end up with a differentiation is really you know your energy costs, the efficiency in the algorithm, and um, you know the cost of compute. So you know, it's very much forward thinking, but the energy is even though the U.S. is in a better state, it in an autonomous future is going to be really critical for American manufacturers to think about as well. Well, I know this won't be the last time we're chatting, and hopefully the next time I'll have an opportunity to repay you for all the help you provided in responding to my LinkedIn <laughs> messages while I was in Sweden this summer. So whether we're having herring, meatballs, or if I'm buying you a beer here in the States, I look forward to continuing this conversation sometime. Or a tumbrerulla. Yes, yes. Have you seen those in the States? I've never seen one of those over here. Maybe we should start a food truck. I was going to say, if there's a spot, it would be in New York City where uh, where you spend <laughs> your time. So yeah, there's a business idea in addition to manufacturing the first uh, Tumbarula uh, food truck in the US. So I'll link up to that in the show notes so everyone knows what we're talking about as well. But uh, hey, I appreciate you jumping back on, Willem, and uh, looking forward to chatting again in the future. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Skull. Cheers. Skull. Hey, thanks for listening. It was excellent having Willem back on today's show. Of course, if you want to connect with Willem, if you want to access any of the things he's doing, you know, I don't think I mentioned it at the start of this episode or in the interview, but he's also a contributor to Forbes. So you can learn a lot about him when it comes to Industry 4.0, AI. Check out his articles. Check out Odin Technologies. And also, if you want to try uh, Tumbarula for the first time in Sweden, well, I'm going to link up to that in the show notes as well. All of that is over at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 125. That'll take you straight to the page for this episode. As we wrap up, if you enjoyed today's show, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review. Hey, Apple Podcasts, you can do that five-star review. You can also, I should say that five-star rating, but you can also do that review. It doesn't need to be more than a couple sentences on Spotify. Hey, just hit that five-star button. It doesn't take long to do it over there either. Would greatly appreciate it if you can help continue to put that show on the map and give us feedback that helps us shape the type of content we feature on this show. So with that, that's another wrap for this week. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again real soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.